Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Anne Churchland, Associate Professor at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. We'll be speaking with her about finding science by teaching kids math, the neural basis of multisensory decision-making, and the benefits of lab blogging. All this and more coming up. We're here with Anne Churchland, Associate Professor at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Churchland. My pleasure. So usually we like to start the show by asking our guests you know, how they grew up to become scientists. I think this is interesting for a lot of uh, young scientists out there. And I found out that it, it's actually somewhat of a family business, so to speak, to study the mind and the brain in your family. So your parents, Paul and Patricia Churchland, are both um, uh, neurophilosophers. Um, and I've actually been publishing on the subject for several decades. Yeah. Um, and your brother, Mark, is also uh, runs a systems uh, mm-hmm. lab over at Columbia. So, um, I just had to ask, is neuroscience, was this a dinner table topic growing up, or was becoming a neuroscientist just like kind of a natural fate for you, or did you actually think about doing other things when you were younger? I did think about doing other things, yes. You're, you're, you're right though, to describe it as kind of a family business. We, um, we joke that we're kind of like the Smith & Brothers auto repair, except for, um, for neuroscience instead of fixing cars. Um, but uh, yeah. I think my my parents' enthusiasm for neuroscience, I think especially my mom's, was really evident from the time I was really young. And she was not an experimentalist. She was a philosopher, so she had a really different kind of career than um, than I have. She wasn't running experiments or having a lab, but she was really excited about the field of neuroscience and really um, believed strongly that it would change the way that people think about how we are and why we do the things that we do. Um, and on, her enthusiasm was really infectious. I, I mean, I think she she inspired a lot of people to go into the field. And in fact, it, it happens to me a lot that someone will come up to me at a conference and say, you know, it was because of your mom that I went into into So she's very inspiring. She really pushed you guys to, to think about the sciences or, or you know, intellectual pursuits or... Or both your parents? If anything, I think she had kind of reservations about about a career in science because at the time where I was kind of making a decision about what to go on after college, it was a time, not, not unlike right now, when the NIH funding was at a low level. And so she had seen people that she knew, like at the Salk, for example, really close their labs and have to change their field because they just were not able to get funding for their research. So if anything, she really had kind of caution about that. Uh, and, and also just as an open-minded person about there certainly being lots of interesting things to do in, in life and um, both inside and outside of science as well. So, what, what kind of things did you think of as alternatives had you not done neuroscience? Yeah, well, I actually came to um, be interested in science through slightly a slightly different path from the rest of my family. When I was in college as an undergraduate, I volunteered um, as just sort of to do you know outreach at a local elementary school. It was a really interesting experience, also a really difficult one. I was um, teaching math to really young kids, like maybe eight or nine-year-olds, and uh, I was struck by how incredibly challenging it was to communicate to them these ideas that were really natural to me in my head. And I started thinking about about cognitive development for that reason. And just to be specific, there, there would sometimes be concepts that were so simple to me that, that seemed so intuitive that I couldn't explain it all. And then I would have some offhanded thing, like I remember one time I was trying to teach them about tens and ones and so on, and I had all these manipulatives and I blew it. I could not explain anything. And then 
at the end of the session, I had some play money, like from a Monopoly game, and brought out the tens and the ones, just kind of to kill time, because my original lesson plan was a disaster, and they just kind of clicked immediately. Like so, something that made it so obvious to them was not the way I was thinking about the problem at all. So through that, I got really interested in cognitive development, which is a fascinating field, sort of trying to understand what kinds of knowledge uh, very young people come into the world with and how they build on that knowledge as they go through informal experiences in the world and later formal mathematical training, like in school, for example, how their ideas um, about mathematical concepts are kind of reshaped. Um, and so I became really enthusiastic about science and research um, because of that, um, which is a very different kind of angle, I think. Um, but then in the end, um, although I, I had a lot of enthusiasm for that field, I found the data collection process really very challenging. You have to identify all these infant volunteers and get them to come into the lab. And at that, that point, the kind of data sets that we were collecting weren't super rich data sets. They were like a series of reaches that the infant made or something of 20 reaches, and that was it. Um, so it was kind of a desire to have richer data sets that brought me into systems neuroscience and into animal work, um, which is a very different field. It was a big transition. You made your way eventually to, to Steven Lisberger's lab over at UCSF, um, and that actually ended up being the lab in which you did your PhD. Um, and I know that at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, he, he already had a large body of work uh, studying what's known as the vestibular ocular reflex, which is, for those that don't know, it's a reflex that keeps your eyes kind of looking in the same spot uh, when you turn and move. It's essentially that so you don't just com become completely dizzy from moving around. And he was studying these neurons in the cerebellum that underlie this reflex, uh, mostly in monkeys. So, okay, so that's a mouthful, but how did you even end up there? So, so did you already have an interest in doing experiments? And, and was this the first time that you would actually had actually done recordings and a non-human model? It was my first experience, yeah. And I really did not know anything about the field at all. <laughs> Um, and I went there because he had a job. He, th his old technician had quit, and he needed a technician to kind of run animal experiments and help keep track of you know, ordering things in the lab. And, and I sort of was interested in science but didn't really feel ready to commit to graduate school because I wasn't quite sure where my interests lay. And so I really kind of went there thinking it would be a good place to, to learn something new. I didn't really know much about that field at all when I started. So it was quite intimidating um, to get going uh, at that point. You just you just saw an ad for his lab that he needed a technician, or had you heard of what he was kind of doing? No, I heard about it because at the time, my brother was a rotation student in his lab. Oh. And, um, and at that point, my brother and I didn't really talk that often, but I yeah. very coincidentally, I happened to be on the phone with him and was telling him, oh, I'm thinking about you know going to this place or that place. And he said, oh, I think our technician just quit, so why don't you apply here? And, and to be honest, it wasn't a very principled decision. He just, he made me a good offer. It sounded like an interesting thing to do. And so off I went. But it was totally tra transformed my thinking completely. Amazing experience. And, and what about being in the lab did you like? I mean, it was so different from what you'd done before. What I really liked was coming into the lab every day and running experiments and analyzing the beautiful data that that lab is set up to collect. Um, it was just wonderful. We were collecting uh, eye movement data, and at that point, I was actually working on the vestibulo-ocular reflex that you described um, uh, very well just a moment ago. And the, the kinds of eye movements that you measure in response to vestibular mm -hmm. inputs 
are just beautiful. They're super short latency and they're super smooth and you just have tons and tons of data every day and you could analyze it all these different ways and find out all these different things. And I just yeah. love and coming so in and running The data itself is beautiful and also seemed to give you yeah. more of the richness, I guess, that you mentioned look, you were looking for earlier. Exactly. I, I think at that point, I really did not understand the big questions in the field, particularly. I mean, I did a bit, you know, like I knew, you know, what the, what the goals of the experiment were, but I didn't kind of really understand why that is such an incredible system for getting at questions about sensory processing and sensory adaptation. Um, I mean, now I do and have a, have a different appreciation for the field for that reason. But at the time, yeah, I just love collecting the data and analyzing the data. Yeah. That's where a lot of people start. So you decided to do your PhD because you loved it so much. But the work that you ultimately did in that lab, uh, I just want to ask a little bit about this. Um, so I think you published mostly not about the cerebellum or the VOR, but eventually you were studying something called smooth pursuit eye movements. And in addition to this, not only did you work in monkeys, but you were working in humans. So I guess first start maybe by explaining what this smooth pursuit eye movement is and why you were interested in studying it. And then also, uh, were people working on humans in that lab at the time? And, and what prompted you to do this? Smooth pursuit eye movements are very different from vestibularly evoked ones in that they are they're non-reflexive. It's not a reflex, and also they're driven by cortical input. So the vestibular ocular reflex is actually driven by um, an input from your inner ear, whereas smooth pursuit is driven by a visual input. It's when you see something that's moving but not moving too quickly, you can follow it by matching your eye velocity to the velocity of whatever it is that's moving. And that helps to stabilize that image on your retina so that you can do all kinds of things. You can figure out more about what it is. You can see it better uh, and make a decision about what to do um, and so on. So it's, um, it's mediated by completely different circuits and really serves a very different purpose. Almost intentional purpose, I guess, in a way. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. Uh, and it's sort of more um, uh, subject to kind of top-down control. You can make decisions about which object you want to track, for example, and um, and it's a feedback movement, so you're continuously updating the movement based on the incoming sensory signal. So yeah, but it was the involvement of cortical pathways that made me interested in smooth pursuit and, and want to study it. And you were interested in the cortex because you felt it was um, like a more advanced structure, or what was it about? Um, I, well, I think I, I like the idea, well, I think two things. First of all, probably one of the reasons that the cortex kind of grew and grew um, in the mammalian brain as cognition started to become more sophisticated is because probably one of the things that cortex lets us do is to use information in a very flexible way. And that's not completely true. There are midbrain circuits that do that as well, um, certainly in other species like birds. Um, but, but in the mammalian brain, it's probably mostly cortical machinery that affords the kind of um, cognitive flexibility that I think makes human um, brains and, and primate brains really interesting. Mammalian brain's interesting, I guess I, sh I, guess I should say. Um, and also, I think it's appealing in the cortex, the idea that, there, that even though the cortex itself is quite large and has many, many um, uh, hundreds of millions of neurons in it, that we might be able to understand it because there's probably a, a much smaller number of computations that are repeated in many different parts of the cortex. So maybe it's kind of a more tractable problem if we could kind of get that computational hook. Hmm, I never really thought of it that way, that the cortex might be simpler, actually, you're saying, in a way, to study? Or is that what you're I don't saying? know that it's simple, but the, the fact that it's um, involved in, for example, so many different sensory processes, but that the kind of cortical circuit is conserved across those different sensory systems, vision, somatic sensation, kind of suggests that maybe the cortex is doing something similar with each sensory stream. And then, yeah. I see, I see. So in a way, it's like these modules being reused over and over again, 
And it's kind of, if you understand those core modules, you can actually understand quite a bit because of the fact that they've been repeated um, in a way. Sure, yeah, exactly. And, um, and and I also want to ask about your human work in that lab. So was that something, so that I, I only want to ask because as we'll see as we talk about your current work, uh, using many different model systems is something that you that you've argued for and actually it plays out in your own uh, lab now. So uh, why did you choose to pursue that kind of work in, in your graduate uh, studies? Uh, well, it was a new direction for the lab actually because the lab had mm -hmm. almost entirely worked with primates before. I guess Steve Lisberger had had collaborations with people doing human work, but um, within the lab, people hadn't been collecting human data. And we got a really nice, at the time, state-of-the-art uh, eye tracker called a dual Purkinje eye tracker which um, people probably don't use anymore because they're, <laughs> but at the time it was state of the art, it was super high temporal resolution and it made it possible to study the same kinds of things in primates that we did in humans, uh, sorry, in humans that we did in primates, but um, also it allowed us to, to kind of ask questions to the humans. Well, you know, things like, oh, do you, did, did you see that happening? Or, you know, can you try to do this this way now and kind of interact with them in a way that um, we couldn't, of course, with a nonverbal animal subject. Um, so, yeah, so um, no one had really done it in the lab before. We all just, I don't know, I never really thought about it. It was just this sort of new setup, and we were all excited, <laughs> and we just, it was a time in his lab. It was an incredible time. All the people there, we were so excited about science, and we just had this kind of attitude of, like, yeah, let's, let's do this thing. Like, it's going to be hard, but, but we can do it. And so... Like a no-fear kind of attitude, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. with great yeah, people yeah. in the lab, Jennifer Raymond, um, who's at Stanford, right. and yeah. Ihan Chu, who went on to be an editor at Nature, and Justin Gardner, Nicholas Preeby, my brother, Mark Churchland, um, Nick Carey, um, Javier Medina, just unbelievable group of people all there at the same time, and um, it's really, really fun. Sounds like a great community. Um, all right, and so uh, moving on to kind of where you went from there. So after you did all of this work on the smooth eye pursuit eye movements uh, in graduate school, uh, you moved up to Washington, I, I think uh, that's where he was then, uh, to work with Mike Shadlin um, on decision making. We actually interviewed Mike Shadlin last year. Um, it was a very intense interview. He's a very intense man, uh, <laughs> uh, but very, very smart. A little bit. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and decision making is actually still the topic that you're working on now at Cold Spring Harbor today. I think a lot of non-scientists, when they hear that somebody in the lab is studying uh, decision making, it's it's very obvious to them like why this could be an interesting thing. We make so many decisions in our lives, whether it's like you know what am I going to eat tonight, to everything to the big decisions like career decisions, uh, relationship decisions. But you know, for for the layperson or even for myself, I'm more of a cellular neuroscientist. If I were to open up one of your papers, I'd be like, "How can you study such a complex process? Decision making to me seems maybe because I'm an undecisive person, uh, just a very complex thing." And so maybe you could just tell us. So what was the thing about decision making that drew you to the problem as a scientist um, and also as a person? And also maybe unpack for audiences a little bit. How do you study such a complex thing? Because I would say that as I'm looking through your work. In fact, a theme is that you're just trying to constantly increase the complexity of how you study it in the lab and also how you analyze it. If you think about the field of neuroscience where you're sort of looking at, at going from sensation to action, then you have the really simple kind of reflexive types of behaviors like the vestibular ocular reflex that we talked about a moment ago, which is purely reflexive. We know all of the neurons involved. We know them so well. We even understand how they change throughout life. It's incredible. And the other end of that spectrum are the truly complex decisions of the sort that you mentioned a moment ago. What career are you going to have? Who are you going to marry? What kind of car are you going to buy? And there's a huge gap between the simple reflexes that we understand well and the truly complex decisions about which we don't have any, any understanding at all. And so my hope with my work in decision making is to try and bridge that gap 
by taking behaviors, sensory guided behaviors, sometimes sensory and, and internally guided behaviors, and making them progressively more complex so that we can start to build on that foundation of going from sensation to action in simple frameworks and move towards the truly complex decisions that I think we will one day want to understand both for basic science and for, um, and for clinical reasons. And, and so maybe to go into some of the specifics, so um, kind of a first step towards that when you were in uh, Mike Shadlin's lab. So you published two papers, one of which you kind of increased the complexity of the task, and then the other one in which you changed the way that you an analyzed the recordings that you got during when animals were performing decision kind of tasks. Can you, can you tell us about that work? Yeah, so for the first one, I took advantage of a paradigm that Mike Shadlin had developed in his lab, been developing for a while, in which animals make decisions about the direction of motion and make a saccade to one of two choice targets that are available. And I remember hearing Mike talk at a meeting and hearing about the framework that he was using to understand those kinds of decisions and also to connect them to their underlying neural mechanism. And I remember asking him, well, what would happen if you went from two to four choices? Because the whole framework was kind of built around this idea that you were accumulating evidence for or against different alternatives. And in real life, of course, we might have many different alternatives or it might not be a discrete choice at all. We might decide, be deciding which direction to run, right, which is an analog quantity or deciding along a continuum. And so he and I kind of talked about that and sort of talked about, well, how would that model have to change? You know, would it be really based the same kind of framework, but extended to account for the fact that there was more uncertainty and so on? Or would using this more complex paradigm kind of throw the old way of thinking out the window and, and reveal that sort of a new paradigm for understanding decisions was needed? Um, and so I was really inspired by that and decided to work on that when I came to his lab as a, um, as a postdoc. And so, yeah, I collected, it was the same kind of paradigm that made it more difficult by adding more choice targets and then thought a lot about how the neural responses that I collected during those kinds of more difficult decisions, how they would sort of change our understanding. And so it was kind of a small change that I made to the stimulus. I just added a few more choice targets, but it allowed us to begin to ask, well, how can we move this rather simple framework towards understanding more truly complex behavior? And are the animals better at the task, or is it, is it completely different, the way that they behave with, when presented with more tasks, or is it basically the same model applied? Yeah, it was interesting. So the same kind of framework worked, but there were a couple of key changes. So the way that the sensory evidence was handled, the way that the animals kind of made use of the incoming sensory information was very similar for two and for four choice decisions. So it didn't seem to change things on the sensory side at all. And these but are sensory cues like like light or... It was all direction all, of motion. All direction of motion. Yes, okay. they're just deciding about direction of motion of, of random dogs. So, so sensory side, nothing changed. The sensory aspect of the responses was very similar. But there were instead changes in the animals, what you might call kind of his strategy or his decision policy. So um, in terms of the, uh, the strategy, we found that animals were, were, well, in any kind of decision, animals have some kind of urgency to make a decision. And you, you kind of know about this too. I mean, anybody was, anybody would. If, if you're under time pressure, there's a certain point in which case you just kind of have to lower your standards and just go on your choices. Yeah. <laughs> right. Know that. Know yeah, you that. can't like, look for a car at a certain point, you just got to. And we, we refer to that as urgency. And we had a way of tracking that in both the behavioral and the neural data. And we found that the animals had more urgency on two choice decisions. And that, if you think about it, makes perfect sense. If you, um, if you uh, have four choices to make, if you have a lot, if you're deciding between many alternatives, you just can't push it on the time too much because you have to have enough evidence to distinguish between them. But if you only have two, you can kind of hurry things along a bit and still do okay. 
So that was kind of the difference in the animal's um, strategy. And then in terms of their decision policy, and this one's pretty intuitive also, we just found that they required more evidence before committing to a choice when there were four alternatives instead of two. And that makes sense because if you start out with four alternatives, your uncertainty is much higher. So you have to just reduce that uncertainty more before you're ready to commit to a choice. And so these are all kind of abstract quantities. You're describing urgency and also uh, needing more evidence. Are you talking about something that the neurons are doing or like just latencies and, and timing? Both of those. The, the urgency, for example, it was kind of a signature both in the behavior and in the neural firing rate. So it's, it's sort of slightly technical. I won't be able to go into too much detail, but basically when we tried to fit the behavioral data with, with a very simple version of the model that didn't take into account that the animals might be in a hurry to decide, we couldn't fit the behavioral data very well. But then when we assumed, oh yeah, probably you know they're not gonna take forever. There's gonna be something to put an end to this decision at a certain time. We were able to model the data, just the behavior, much better. Then we went and looked at the neurons and we said, oh, wait a minute, here's this interesting difference between two and four choice neural responses. That looks like it's pointing to a difference in urgency also. So there's sort of two very different kinds of data, the animal's behavior and also the neural responses that we measured were both pointing to this idea that there are mechanisms that prevent you from kind of dilly-dallying too long on any... So when you look at the timing in a certain way, the, the analysis, I guess, kind of fits a little bit, it seems like, in terms of neural data and also behavior is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe moving forwards, um, well, we didn't really get to talk about the analysis, but uh, I don't want to take too long. But I do want to talk about... I, uh, I can summarize it in a Sure, why don't you go ahead and do that? Twitter, Twitter style. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to uncover neural mechanisms, don't just think about the mean. Variance matters to you. Uh, another thing that you've uh, done to kind of increase the complexity of... Uh, of, of uh, decision-making tasks in the lab, and which you're actually doing now in your own lab um, that you have, uh, is to start studying multi-sensory decisions. So you talked a little bit about the sensory uh, side of decision-making. Um, and can you describe to us what is it now? So you've gone from two to four choices. Now what are you actually doing to the task to, to make it even more complex, I guess? Yeah, so what we, what, what we did is kind of married together two fields. So one of them is the one you know about already, where animals are integrating evidence over time to guide a choice. And I did actually go back to two choice for the moment, so I didn't make it too difficult. Um, and then the other field is uh, a, a longstanding field with most of its history in human work, um, but some animal work as well, studying how humans are able to put together information from multiple sensory systems to just basically do better, to be more accurate, to be faster, um, and so on. And this is the phenomenon that everybody knows already, right? If you're on your iPhone and there's a lot of background noise, it's quite difficult to understand what the speaker's saying. Whereas if you're in a crowded room and there's a lot of background noise, you can do much better because you get a ton of information from the speaker's lips and gestures and so on. And so that multi-sensory input just makes you much better. You just improve hugely. And this is something that we do naturally and effortlessly. Um, and it's something that's not actually that well studied, especially at the level of neural circuits. And so I kind of thought, well, look, I've been studying these decisions where they're accumulating evidence over time to reduce uncertainty. But wait a second, with multisensory integration, this is really the same thing, except you're combining evidence not across time, but across modalities, again, to reduce uncertainty. And so I thought, well, what happens if you put those two together? What if you have animals or humans integrating both over time and across modalities? What if we kind of introduce a temporal dynamic aspect to multisensory integration and, and see what happens? Is, is the improvement the same as it was before? What, what happens at the neural level? Um, and so on. So I kind of brought those two fields together and then also brought them to um, a new model system, which, um, which at the time was somewhat controversial. 
<laughs> so which model system? So I know you work with human and primates. You're also working with rats. I with rodents, like yeah. Rodents in my own lab, I don't have any primates. It's mm. all, we're all human. Mm. Oh, okay, okay. And so that's the controversial part? Yeah. Like, uh, having decision making and, and why is this, I guess people just think rodents are stupid or they can't make decisions or <laughs> what exactly is the controversy? Well, at the time, there were, well, it was controversial on a number of levels. I think most people thought mm. it was a re hugely risky move on my part mm. because mm -hmm. at the time I started my lab, I had had about 11 years experience maybe working mm -hmm. with primates, a huge amount of experience working with primates and no right. experience at all working with rodents. And I went to go oh. open <laughs> which is logistically yeah. was clearly gonna be very challenging. Um, people right. also thought it was a bad move scientifically because the kind of multi-sensory processing I wanted to study was the sort that's been documented in humans where animals, or sorry, where humans, they, they put the information together in a very clever and judicious way. In fact, in okay. fact, in a way that's um, very close to being statistically optimal. They appro approximate statistical optimality. And people were saying to me, like, are you kidding me? Like, optimality <laughs> in a rat. Like, yeah, yeah forget it. <laughs> but, never... but what's the basis for that assumption? I mean, are there are there brain regions that don't exist, maybe, that you were studying? I mean, what or are they just assuming? Cause they're they, yeah, I think there were two things that I think some people just, I, there was no reason why. They, I think people just weren't thinking very deeply about what kinds mm -hmm. of computations mammals need to be capable of doing so i think that was part of it mm -hmm. the other reason i think was more legitimate which is that even if uh, a, an animal is capable of of performing a computation and showing a behavior that demonstrates the existence of this computation in the wild that doesn't mean mm -hmm. you're going to be able to get them to do it in a laboratory setting that's and at that time the rodent behavior mm -hmm. was at a much earlier stage than it is now and the mm -hmm. kind of threshold psychophysics that really catapulted the field of systems neuroscience forward in primates from work of Bill Newsom and Ken Britton and Tony Mopshin and Mike Shadlin, um, that kind of behavior had not been seen at all in rodents, and so people didn't really think that would be possible. Um, but were you able to observe it, or have you observed yeah, it? Yeah, so we found, so it, it became clear with the behavior pretty quickly um, that the animals showed a great multisensory enhancement, that they're very close to the statistically optimal prediction, that they're making really good use of information in the same way that humans did. And I, we set up the lab so that we did all the experiments with humans and rodents together. So we could always compare side by side. We could ask, how are they using the two different modalities? How are they using time? What is their strategy? What are any differences? And so it put us in a really good position um, to, to argue that probably there are very similar computations that are taking place in the brains of these pretty different animals. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so ultimately, I think what you found was that actually uh, in those animals making multisensory decisions, they, do they, they make them better or more efficiently mm -hmm. when they have more information, yep. uh, kind of as you expected. Um, and you've also done some very complex analysis in this case too, um, which I, I think maybe we'll probably talk about it when you talk about what you're gonna speak about, or maybe not. Um, Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, can you just summarize maybe quickly what you've seen with that? Sure, yeah, so on the behavioral level, we found that, that rodents are able to combine auditory and visual information very naturally, and that this enhances their decision accuracy in a way that's very close to the statistically optimal prediction. So they're putting this information together in a very clever way. The neural recordings that we made during those tasks, um, the, the experiments, they, um, they, they revealed something about the way that populations of neurons can reflect reflect multiple sources of information. 
So one of the long-term goals of the lab is to understand the neural mechanism that supports the multisensory enhancement that I just mentioned. But the work that we published recently and that I'll talk about during my visit is a little bit different. It instead took advantage of the fact that we had this multisensory task and we could have the animals making the same decision but governed by two very different sensory inputs. So we could look for kind of classic decision-related activity of the sort that's been reported previously and see how those high-level choice signals interact with low-level sensory signals, like is the signal auditory or visual. And what we found, just to summarize, is that the population is very mixed. Neurons reflect idiosyncratic mixtures of those two, those two um, quite different quantities. I have to admit, I'm not a systems neuroscientist, so, um, but, but basically what I take away from this is that, is that there, are, there are basically neurons that are representing something very abstract, even in these, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not so hinged on the, on the sensory modality. Yeah, that's along the right lines. I mean, if you think about, you know, back to your, your early training in neuroscience, maybe you learned about classic work by Horace Barlow, for example, who found in the frog retina neurons that seem to be specialized for detecting motion and helping the frog catch a fly. And it's kind of tempting to think that there might be specialized categories of neurons like that throughout the brain. Maybe deep in the brain in association areas, there's categories of neurons that are specialized to help animals make decisions. But what we found is no, there are not specialized categories of neurons that are at least not for this particular quantity, but this important thing that the animal needs to do, that is make a choice, the signals related to that are all mixed up with all kinds of other signals, but that doesn't seem to be a problem for the brain. It can still decode that population to, to support whatever quantity the animal might need to compute at a given, mo given moment in time. Um, and I did have one uh, very last quick question. Do you ever think that, so, so far the animals have done better with more sensory information. Is there, is there such thing as too much of a good thing? Can they maybe have too many different inputs? Oh, like would it start to become kind of, inter would they start to interfere with each other? I don't know. That's a very interesting question. I think it would depend on the stimuli. I think if you came up with the right stimulus, you could put a lot of information together. I mean, if you think about, um, certainly if you encounter another live animal in the world, right? Like there's an olfactory signal, there's a visual signal, there's auditory signals. Um, and, and probably animals make use of all of those. If you're, for example, um, wolves that are hunting moose make use of many different kinds of sensory signals, olfactory ones about how old the moose is, visual cues when deciding about which kind of animal to prey upon. So you, it, isn't a, it isn't a done deal that you're always going to merge all of the sensory information that's available. Sometimes it's not clear to the observer that all of it is relevant to the same choice. But if the observer really did make that inference and knew that all these signals were coming from a single source, then yeah, I think they would probably integrate a lot of sensory mm. signals. You can probably handle a lot, a lot of complexity, right? Uh, I guess I'm just thinking about yeah. decision making feels complex, <laughs> overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to hear um, whether that's the case. Um, okay, so I want to uh, take a quick diversion here. So outside of science, you actually have a very active online and public presence. You have a lab blog, uh, which you you actually keep pretty regularly. I'm very impressed with all <laughs> kinds of lab activities and interests. It's hard to maintain a blog, um, and it was actually yeah. named an official SFN Society for Neuroscience blog. Yeah, um, right, you've also yeah. given public talks at the Secret Science Club in Brooklyn. But can you just tell us uh, who's your audience with these uh, blogs and lectures, and and why do you put the time in to maintain these things? I guess different reasons. With the blog, the main reason that I do it is that I I really enjoy writing about science, and I find that the process of writing about the science that I'm experiencing or doing or learning about 
really helps me to kind of consolidate in my own mind. Mm -hmm. um, if I go and hear a talk and I know I'm going to write a blog about it, I think about it more when I'm doing the writing. I'll often write to the author and say, hey, you know, I'm writing this in the blog. Did, did I get this right? Mm -hmm. Then they'll write back and be like, well, actually, there's kind of a subtlety there. It's a bit more like this. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, like with the blog, I kind of do it for selfish reasons. It just deepens my understanding mm -hmm. tremendously of the science that I experience. And mm -hmm. I think we all are facing a challenge now of being so bombarded with right. information all the time that it's kind of a way for me to kind of um, fo focus a little mm -hmm. bit on the parts of science that I really care about and are really important to me and kind of put pen to paper mm -hmm. and describe what, what it was and why it mattered. Right. Um, yeah, what, so I think that's why I write the blog. Right. It was, it was, I actually really liked that um, in addition to just writing about like what your lab members are doing, you even talk about the papers that you guys have had in your data blitz yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is. Data yeah, blitz, so yeah. It's, a, it's a bit of a way to communicate, I guess, between scientists. Um, and also you have... Yeah. You have another site called anslist.net, which is, it seems a very yeah. simple site, but it has like a list of uh, all the current female cognitive and systems neuroscientists uh, that you can invite to your talks or your seminars, which actually I could see would be a very useful thing. Sometimes it's hard to think of people um, to, to uh, reach out to. And so what was the impetus for this? Could you tell us the story maybe a little bit? I'm on the executive committee for the computational and systems neuroscience meeting, um, COSIGN. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to make the list because when we form the program for COSIGN every year, um, especially because it's computational neuroscience, we're always working pretty hard mm -hmm. to make sure that the program has balance of gender. Mm -hmm. And so I started to keep the list just because I would go and hear talks from women in the field and think, oh, yeah, that, that was an awesome talk. Mm -hmm. She'd be a great fit for COSIGN. I want to just write that down mm -hmm. so I don't forget because, you know, you hear talks and then six months later, you, right. you they don't come to mind. Mm -hmm. So I started to keep this list for, this, for that reason. And then I kind of added people who used to be cosine speakers because we don't repeat invite mm -hmm. and so I'd added people that were already speakers mm -hmm. um, so that I wouldn't be confused about and re-invite yeah, the same person right. and then a couple people wanted something and I would kind of share it and then it went just it went completely viral mm, yeah <laughs> it just it was not my intention at all it gets an order of magnitude more traffic than my <laughs> lab blog does it is so widely used mm. it gets so much traffic mm. it's it's great so I really made it for my own use but it turned out there was really a need there's lots right. of people that want to have more of a gender balance at their symposium or their meeting or their departmental review panel mm. or their person you know the review reviewers for for journals mm. and so yeah it's incredibly widely used. Yeah, it was even, I think the president of SFN or yeah. something highlighted <laughs> this. Is, and I went to the site, I was like, this is very simple, but I can see that it's very, very useful. Um, I mean, I've been on the committee for selecting uh, speakers, and, and it can be hard to think of people sometimes. So it's it's extremely yeah. good resource. Uh, could you just give us a short preview of your upcoming talk next week? Start out by describing the behavior that I mentioned to you earlier ago, where we trained animals to make multi-sensory decisions and to be able to guide the same choice by very different kinds of sensory inputs. And then I'll talk about how we recorded neurons during those behaviors and what we learn about, learned about how cortical populations work together to make sense of complex signals and guide decisions. Usually we like to close with what we call the rapid-fire questions. So these are going to just be some short questions. They should be fun. <laughs> Answer with whatever's on your mind. Right? Okay, I'm nervous okay. now. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. Um, so the first question we always ask is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself and as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, I would say don't get discouraged. Keep trying and step outside your own lab. Go to another lab. Go to another university. Go hear a talk. Step outside. Get some perspective. Yeah. that's that People get lost in the lab sometimes. So that's actually really good advice. Um, 
All right, number two, as a decision-making expert, at least on a neural level, do you have your own practical advice or recommended method for making a decision? Yes, decision-making is exhausting. It's really hard, <laughs> and you often don't do that much better if you deliberate. So try not to make too many decisions. Set things up so you don't have to make very many decisions, and, um, and then sometimes just commit. Have an urgency signal. All right, and the last thing, so I recently had some friends that came back from CSHL and uh, said it's a great place to go sailing. So my question is, do you have a boat? <laughs> or do you at least kayak <laughs> or sail? <laughs> I kayak and I swim. So oh, yeah, okay. I go in the water a lot. But oh, well, you swim in the ocean? or? Yes, the they bay? have uh, yeah, some open water swims here every year. So oh, wow. I like in the ocean. Oh, yeah. that's very intense. <laughs> um, all right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was a great interview, um, and I hope to see you soon. Okay, great. Thank right. you very much. Thank you. Bye. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week. My co-host, David Lipton, will be interviewing Peter Banditini, a principal investigator at the National Institutes of Mental Health. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite right West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Giam, Eddie Alburn, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, Ada Yee. Adam Puchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains of Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Aiden Yee.